The following was recorded on Friday, March 13th by our group C. All right, um, that concludes the roundtable portion of our show. Let's each reintroduce ourselves now, or rather introduce ourselves because we didn't last time, but that's okay. We don't have to do every single time. Um, so let's each introduce ourselves, and uh, this is going to be a second podcast. The, the, the roundtable is a short one for people who like a shorter podcast, a more focused one. Uh, the informal discussion is a longer one for people who like a more meandering, more exploratory, dynamic podcast. So we got both. Um, so uh, I'm going to just go around the room. Um, if you could each say your name, uh, your Twitter handle, and then just one sentence about yourself. Starting with you, Angelo. Thank you. Uh, my name is Angelo. Twitter handle is Hellion Hellfire. And I am a member of the Arizona Yang Gang. Thank you very much, Angelo. Caroline? My name is Caroline. My Twitter handle is uh, Victorian Everfan. And uh, my day job is uh, I'm a tech consultant. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Victorian Era Fan for anyone had trouble hearing it we've got you know we're doing the best we can but uh caroline is on a phone microphone today she's traveling for work um sheridan thank you shale i'm sheridan lund i manage a small business and i am going to school on the only form of a federal basic income that we currently have the montgomery gi bill thank you sheridan all right with that, we will begin our informal discussion. Sheridan, I think you wanted to start by talking about how the stock market works. That sounds like a very good place to start because I think as we speak, the stock market is plummeting in a tremendous freefall. It is. It really is. It's actually one of the biggest shocks we've seen, um, excluding, of course, the uh, Great Depression and the Great Recession. Um, we are approaching those points, but uh, on how the stock market works in a basic, grossly oversimplified way for sake of time, the stock market is a collection of traded pieces of paper. Every piece of paper um, is given a value when it's released from a company so that the public can invest in that company initially. However, after that initial release, the company rarely gets any of that money back. Ideally, the company is spending money out to buy those uh, stocks back and put those stocks into treasury bonds, which are another form of asset, and they'll go into the bond market, which is a separate market. Um, because of the uh, supply-side shocks of a major manufacturing player in the global supply chain shutting down, China quarantined half a billion people. They have essentially shut down all their manufacturing for the next two months. And the markets are scrambling for resources and uh, partners to do business with. And people are panicking because of it, instead of just understanding the overall effects of the market. Um, it's very exciting um, for a new investor like myself, who is trying to start a uh, public hedge fund, a social wealth fund. Um, these assets are still valuable companies. And the fact that they're falling in price is honestly pretty irrelevant. Because once this pandemic moves on, most people are, yes, they will be affected. And uh, we adjust. 
everything will pretty much return to mostly normal. And then after a generation, it will be completely normal. I'm actually kind of uh, grateful for such a black swan event to send the market into a correction because I saw no real way that the market would really be able to correct itself um, in the near future, you know? Why did you not see a way for the market to correct itself naturally? Automation. Because once you replace the only real turbulent costs of a business, which is labor, um, a business hits zero marginal cost. You can produce thousands of things for literally no cost, no further cost. And that is, it's, it's literally dipping into infinity. And it's kind of what the Federal Reserve is considering. I think the Federal Reserve is finally seeing that America is a post-scarcity society. Our production capabilities far outstrip anything in history. And we are not alone. We are seeing other well-developed nations and developing nations join the positive sum economy, creating more value than is put in. And we're not ready for it. Our economies and markets are still scarcity driven. We are still under the impression that there are limited resources and humans have unlimited wants, which is not true. We have generally sensible needs and we will hit a carrying capacity, but we can easily expand that carrying capacity through technological innovation and exploration. The surface volume of the 10 kilometers above Earth's surface is more than enough to house a quadrillion people if we use the space efficiently. We can easily collect enough resources from just just, uh, asteroid mining once we set up the proper infrastructure to fully develop the entire solar system. We've hit a point that we have to really choose what we want to do, and we aren't choosing it. We're just hoping that the invisible hand, whatever, whoever you think that is, um, chooses right. And we're not reckoning with the fact that that's us, (laughs) our own policy, our own ambitions. That was fantastically well said, and I'm very glad that we have it recorded. It was really a real good big picture overview of the central theme behind most of our direly pressing problems in 2020 in America. Yeah, so sorry. I didn't mean to go that big picture. Well, no, no, you, that was perfect. You don't have anything to apologize for. That okay, was just good. fantastic. I, I, I'm I, very glad. I, yeah. I just have yeah. one thing to say. Live long and prosper. <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a futurism, uh, a futurism about this uh, way of thinking, but it's not unrealistic. We're really there. You know, it's, it's what we're fighting is kind of a stigma about the idea that this level of prosperity is possible, which is just really unfortunate. <laughs> it really um, is because yeah. I, I actually made a huge long Twitter thread about um, this whole thing when I think it was like a week after Andrew Yang suspended his campaign, I made this thread and I went on to discuss uh, a lot of these big picture ideas um, going back to the beginning of uh, America's founding. When, Washington actually successfully pushed out the British. He had 13 colonies and an entirely unexplored continent. He had amazing popularity. He could have literally done anything he wanted. He could have become a monarch 
of the greatest empire for a hundred years, but he didn't. He absolutely did not. He saw a greater opportunity and he created the American federal superorganism. And I, I have a big critique about the European Union. As great as they are, they are only a confederation. I have a similar critique with the United Nations. Confederations are weak. They don't have any enforce, enforcement beyond volunteerism. America is a federal state. We went to war to stay together. And we will go to war again to stay together if we have to. I don't see that as a big possibility. Um, but when Washington actually made the Constitution and actually got it adopted, it was an incredible strengthening bond to connect an entire continent, honestly. So, yeah, I, I have to give props where it's due. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned the founding of the country. Did you know that most of the founders were Freemasons and a lot of what's in the Constitution was actually built on Freemason principles that were uh, common thought experiments at the time? Oh, yeah. I 100% know that. My father was actually part of the Freemasonry group, and I was part of the youth Freemasonry group called Demolay. Um, they're a great organization, okay. and they teach basic leadership skills. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually, I think, have done a lot of great work um, beyond uh, leadership skills. The uh, Shriners have an uh, entertainment um branch called the uh, Shriners Circus and a that funds a child hospital branch uh, their sh- Shriners um I think it's just like St. Jude's Children's Hospital is what their actual name is. Yes. So I I think it's a great organization and yeah the thoughts that were generated around the beginning of the our country were profound and immense as we have shown over 200 years of stable trade. I have to agree. I think that the system that was designed when people are given the freedom to pursue their own goals and actually pursue new ideas rather than having things dictated directly from the crown, it allowed for more innovation and ideas to spread. And yeah, I, I, I think... What really happened then is we became an information economy, even though we were still in the base production scarcity economy. Yes, and you can actually see that on a micro scale in the Yang Gang itself, because we have people from all over different types of backgrounds, different types of skills and experience, and they all come together and form, I would say, almost like one giant neural net, something that, you know, there is more information being shared within the Yang Gang than you could possibly get from any AI or supercomputer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the uh, things that I think humans will find our own niche. Um, Tesla or Elon believes that we will merge with AI, but I, I think that's an idealistic hope. I don't think that we're going to truly merge with AI. I think we're going to find a niche where human intuition becomes invaluable and technology tools and AI become um, arms off that intuition. I have to agree. The thing is with AI is that no computer can think outside of its programmed parameters, no matter how much it learns. Whereas humans are capable of some of the most off the wall thoughts. Uh, Just ask a small child and you'll see that. 
Yeah, even with the way AI is trained right now, um, you, you basically have to look at the human education system and mock that into a data set and put time in to let the uh, machine randomly generate the results you want. Though I will grant a machine can do that far faster and far more continuously than a biological human. Uh, the advantage biological humans have right now is one-shot learning. You can show us something once generally and we will get it. Mm -hmm. And also, like I said, humans just have the most random off-the-wall thoughts sometimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so beautiful. Like, that's, that's, that should be the number one mantra for why we need a basic income. Fund the artists. Definitely. All right. Um, this is the first time I've had to, like, uh, say something in the informal discussion because he's just gone silent. Uh, yeah, sorry. We, we just uh, okay. went off the wall. And all that. <laughs> no. Uh, um, yeah, let's, let's go back to where we were talking. Stock market, what it does. Um, quick recap for where we were um, beyond the big time stuff. The stock market is just a market of assets where you can trade and they change in value based on hearsay and buying patterns. The interesting thing also about the stock market is stock value, and I'm a business owner, when a company is valued, you're projecting future value. When you go to an investor, you can say, my company is worth, you know, a million dollars, just throwing out an arbitrary number there, based on what you believe your company's growth potential is. So even those first stocks, the value is arbitrary and the only real value you have is after investor capital goes in and you now have a budget to work with. Then you're actually seeing, you know, calculable things like uh, return on investment, uh, return on time investment, um, and you see the real market value of what your products are. So I think that's the other thing about the stock market is some of it is solid data and some of it is, uh, quite frankly, just speculation is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? Um, are stock options going to you know, rise or fall? All those things kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? All of those things are more speculative than actual, like based in hard data, I would say, at least to an extent. Yeah. I mean, I've heard uh, of experiments where random chance beats professional well-paid stockbrokers pretty often. Yeah, there was a uh, study with, I believe, Oscar the Cat pitted against several hedge funds. And Oscar the Cat managed an 11.3% return rate versus the 5.5% return rate of the best of the hedge funds. If I'm telling you that Cat is credentialism. Oh, sorry. We both try to talk at the same time. Go, go on, Angela. Yeah. Oh, I was just uh, making a joke. I said that Cat is clairvoyant. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I was, I was saying. Uh, Ariel is fond of uh, of bringing up credentialism, and I think it's a great rhetorical tool. The idea that um, credentials are often meaningless because of the perverse incentives behind getting them. So these stockbrokers don't actually have any skill <laughs> that they're so well paid for. Oh man, I'm going to have to get on to a chat with Ariel because I think I just credentialism. I I love that. I'm going to have to add a chapter yeah, in my book. You guys book. should have a. About Why don't you guys do like a? You guys could do a podcast. Uh, you could do an episode together, the two of you. He's been. Yeah, he's. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's. He's pretty available. Usually, you can find him. But um, yeah, go on. 
please continue. Uh, we can talk about anything uh, relating to poverty, basic income, Andrew Yang, the stock market's well, fine, but we don't have to keep it on the stock market. But, I actually uh, but please, um, like the current events mood um, with what's going on because there's a lot going on. There was a tweet I read about um, that said this time more than any proves that there can be decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. I like that. Um, interestingly enough, some companies are already, or companies, some countries are already starting to introduce a universal basic income. South Korea, for example, just put forth legislation to basically do an Andrew Yang version of universal basic income. Yes, uh, Japan also just implemented a very small basic income to encourage people to stay home. I believe it's 80 US dollars a day. Um, and, yes. Uh, I, I want to also bring up some past UBI um, struggles that were implemented during tenuous times. Um, I believe Argentina, either Argentina or Peru, I can't remember which which of those countries, but they were immersed in riots because the state raised um, transportation fees. And after those riots, one of the uh, things that helped quell them was a basic in income pilot where um, every citizen was given about 300 US dollars a month. Um, and then kids were given like uh, 150. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I had to read it off of a Spanish news outlet. So unfortunately, my Spanish isn't solid. So those are, those are what I got. I may be a little bit inaccurate on the numbers. At least, you know, we get the general gist of it. I'm curious uh, from an outsider's perspective that isn't, you know, that's seeing the United States and all the craziness that's going on here from, you know, a lens where you're not in it. Uh, what do you think, Caroline? Because it's interesting to kind of, analyze things from a distance, especially since uh, your job is basically... Huh? Can you repeat the question? Sorry, I hurt my name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was just asking uh, for an outsider's perspective, what do you think about what's going on uh, with the U.S. markets, you know, seeing that from, you know, a distance where you kind of have a feel for business, what's going on, you know, there without actually being in it? Well, obviously, it's a bit of a shock. I won't say I'm surprised, but it does show, it does it does seem to indicate to me that that's there's this uh, mentality among Americans that uh, people should rely a lot on the stock market to bolster their income. And as we know, the stock market isn't the most reliable source of income. I never realized how much people saw the stock market as an income generator until all this happened. Yeah, day trading is kind of crazy. I'm I'm baffled that people would give up a regular cash flow to rely on the minuscule margins you'd get through arbitraring uh, assets around. I mean, obviously, in Malaysia, there uh, there are many people who do invest in the stock market, but uh, I don't hear people talk about it so often. It's not seen so much as something so significant as something that's a major part of your income it's more seen as an extra and the people I, that are talking about the stock market tend to be already pretty really into finance and that sort of thing as in one, the u.s it seems a little bit more mainstream well one of the reasons that might be is because most people's retirement went from uh being 
getting a pension from the company that you've put in, you know, worked for for 20, 30 years or more to being put into a 401k, which is entirely tied to the stock market. So your retirement is literally on the line, depending on if the stock market's up or down. Yeah, my small well, in business. Malaysia, that's this, uh, we, we do have a national pension fund. It's called the EPF. Uh, I believe it's uh, Employee, Employees Provident Fund. And uh, they invest the money in the stock market and in many other things. But generally, there's been less concern somehow. Yeah, America doesn't have any kind of federal nationwide fund like that. The closest thing we have is the Social Security and Social uh, Security Disability Programs. Um, wh- but they take taxes out of business uh, production and then pay it to recipients. It's not a true fund. Well, basically, in Malaysia, if you are a full-time employee and you earn above a certain income, uh, you're required to have... Uh, an EPF account. Your employ your employer is required to pay you a certain percentage. I believe it's about eleven uh, percent minimum the salary. Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah, I I know with my uh, businesses, I'm going to definitely bring pensions back because forcing people who don't want to be capitalists into the capitalist market is not appropriate. Like if they want to invest that money into the uh, system. They can absolutely do that on their own. The thing about the EPF is that uh, they prioritize uh, long-term investments rather than, uh, you know, quick short-term gains. So it's more more like the uh, government um, pension fund of Norway as well, right? It's it's just like in a swing. Yes, but the thing interesting thing is that even though it's technically the government, they hire a lot of people from the private sector, and uh, they have a lot of autonomy from uh, the government in some ways. It's the culture is totally different from a typical government department. What's interesting, how the EPF came about, uh, it was started basically to gain a Malaysian citizen's loyalty towards the government during a war. Yeah, that's definitely what the uh, United States needs to do with a basic income to increase institutional trust during this pandemic, because I think that's the number one thing that's going to increase the American death rate above the WHO's average is our uh, aging population and the fact that we don't have enough institutional trust. I agree. Um, Sheridan, you might find this topic interesting, is with the proposals that have been put out, you know, tossed back and forth for the last 40 years, is either uh, raising taxes or lowering taxes on corporations to try and stimulate the economy, which, in my opinion, neither of those really work because they don't work on the basic principle of capitalism, which is supply and demand. The only way companies will increase their supply is if there's enough market demand for it, which they're trying to always keep an equilibrium with. So I just wanted your opinion on that. Oh, that's I, I'm 100% behind you on that. I, I tell business owners who say, oh, I work for my money. Yeah, but guaranteed markets are easier to work for. Because when you don't have to guess the cash flow of what you're getting from your customers, you have confidence. You have business confidence. That's why businesses that sell exclusively to other businesses do better. They Businesses have better liquidity and better credit than any individual does. And we need to understand that individuals shouldn't be getting credit. They should be getting cash. Because individuals create demand, not not businesses, not uh, 
just empty air. And we've just been working on supply, 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 because we were focused on scarcity. If people uh, saw that there wasn't enough, they would just make their own farm and hopefully produce more. But as technology advanced, as we got more specialized, as our communication and transport got better and cheaper, that became a far smaller problem. And we haven't reckoned with it. Like I was mentioning earlier, we haven't reckoned with what post-scarcity really means. And we've seen the effects of what post-scarcity is for the last decade. This bull run has been unprecedented in history. The business cycle is normally every three to five years. We see a massive recession or at least a serious correction. And it took a black swan event, a global pandemic to send the markets into correction now. That's what I mean when I was, I'm very grateful for this correction because it may wake our government up to the fact that this isn't right. (laughs) Yeah, also the interesting thing is, you know, just from a business perspective is how much of the market is really there that has the money to spend on your products versus how much of the market wants to spend money on your products, but they can't because they're limited resources that they need to survive. Whereas putting cash directly into those people's hands, how many businesses would see a huge boom in customers? Oh, 100%. Um, The uh, accessibility versus affordability argument has been raging in healthcare specifically for the past two decades or past decade, really, since the Affordable Care Act was released. Um, the fact that p- everyone can get onto insurance it versus whether everyone can afford insurance. That's kind of the whole premise behind, um, I think, the giant wave for Medicare for All. We shouldn't have insurance. We should just pay doctors to do their doctory things and to live a doctory life. And in many ways, insurance um, almost incentivizes extra things for doctors because they're like, well, they'll pay for it versus what exactly does my patient need at this moment? And do I need to make so much to keep my practice above water? Beyond the uh, productivity and um, itemization of uh, medicine, the uh, biggest thing that I think Andrew Yang pointed out was that uh, I just blanked on it. What was it that you were just saying, Angelo? I was saying that um, actually I brought up the fact that they do a lot of unnecessary Oh, yes, yes. The itemization. Um, Andrew Yang brought up a great point of malpractice protection because doctors are so concerned about getting sued for malpractice um, that they will prescribe a hundred or a thousand unnecessary tests just to make sure that they checked every box. Yeah, and that's one of the ways where you create a bloated system that's inefficient because people are just paranoid about this or that and it doesn't necessarily help because you can be checking every box and still miss something critical because you're so busy trying to get every possible check that you can yeah because um healthcare isn't a business it's it's it or at least it shouldn't be run like a business uh it's not like a restaurant where you can just manage the input output of food and people um and understand the competition of other restaurants hospitals don't have to deal with that. They service an area. Exactly. Plus, the other thing with um, medicine is there's a reason they call it a practice because part of it is science and part of it is the intuition of the doctor. You know, does this sound like something I've heard before? These symptoms are saying one thing, but 
it's not quite fitting right. Let me test for something else that I think it might be that it turns, you know, in more often than not cases, it turns out to be right. Well, speaking of uh, intuition, uh, what, what's a trend in healthcare now is big data. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so as you know, I do work in tech consulting and there was one project that we did and uh, uh, basically there have been uh, healthcare companies that have teamed up with technology companies mm-hmm. and they look at big data to find out uh, to find out uh, common symptoms of patients and uh, there's an algorithm to find out the most the most likely solution to the patient's illness. And a lot of times, uh, this helps doctors uh, to diagnose uh, their, their patient's illness and recommend solutions to them. And uh, I, I, healthcare is going to face a lot of automation, especially when it comes to diagnosis. Oh, absolutely. One of the uh, things Andrew Yang talked about in regards to healthcare was the AI and technology that would allow more inexperienced basically trained people to become basically primary care doctors augmented with an AI that can diagnose pretty much anything and then refer to a specialist for uh, edge cases. That sounds almost exactly like what Caroline was saying. I was just going to ask uh, Caroline, when do you think that we'll start to see these primary care deserts start to be relieved by more... um, basically trained uh, personnel, not really nurses and not really doctors. Within the next few years, I think. I do know there's quite a lot of projects in the pipeline uh, along these lines. So would you say in the next five to ten years, which is the rough ballpark that Andrew Yang went with? Definitely. Way to bring it back on topic. I mean, it always kind of was that topic, but way to bring it back to Andrew Yang. Well, of course. Would anyone like to talk a little bit more about that Biden endorsement? Because that I was disappointed uh, as well. I, 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 but I, I think it was with some with some burners who are you know very smart people, but, some very good good friends. And, I was uh, I was honestly heartbroken about it, but I think it was yeah. a necessary sacrifice he had to make in order to make UBI and his other policies mainstream. See, a lot of times when when it comes to people, when it comes to voters, they don't just look at the policy; they look at the person. They think, is this person mainstream? Are they acceptable by the general public? And if and, a person seems mainstream enough, if they're accepted by your establishment, then their crazy ideas will be more accepted. I uh, also, I, I share a lot of Caroline's feelings here. Um, more on the mechanics, I'm pretty excited because this is going to show up on a lot of moderates' um, feeds. They're going to be scrolling around and see, oh, this, this guy who is a prominent figure is, is endorsing my guy. Maybe I should figure out what his values are. I think it's also a reason why he accepted the job as a CNN political commentator. Oh, that's 100% it. He, he needs to get the message out that our economy is post-scarcity and using scarcity-driven economics is going to kill us. He can say that every that, day. The interesting thing is that someone like Yang, would, you would think would be a better fit on the surface for, you know, a a more liberal or progressive anti-establishment network, maybe the Young Turks or Chapel Trap House. I mean, UBI was, uh, before, Yang's, before Yang ran for president, uh, UBI was discussed on these networks, if I'm not mistaken, and they were more positive towards it. But uh, there's still a perception that, that they're anti-establishment, that they're not so safe. I think what a lot of people want is safety and security. One of the things I will say that caught my attention since you brought up CNN is there is a 
there's actually a psychological reason for being in the public eye so much and creating trust. It is actually proven that the longer you spend eye contact with someone, the more you inherently tend to trust them. And being, you know, on screen, looking at the camera all the time, that creates that trust almost automatically. This is why um, people feel a strong affinity to YouTubers that just talk directly into the camera frequently because they're simulating that direct eye contact. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely, definitely went into the logic of Yang getting on to CNN. It's definitely an interesting fact. That's why I, I was a bit disappointed that Yang didn't use his YouTube platform as frequently as he should have. I felt like that was a very um, big missed opportunity because, again, that FaceTime with people, it just, you know, obviously he wanted to be there in person, but just digitally, that FaceTime all the time actually oh, helps to create more trust. I completely agree because he says he's better at the, the internet than Trump, but I'll say that that's not a high bar to clear. Uh, he could have done a lot more to get his face out into the public image. Um, but he spent so much time on the ground in Iowa, focusing on, on that first caucus that just ended up in disaster. That's I'll, I'd mark that as what really did his campaign in is the Iowa disaster. What would you say he should have done that he didn't to get his face out? Um, he was trying to take as many news outlets as he could, but in doing so, he he left off a lot of uh, smaller podcasts with more passionate followers who would actually talk more. Um, a lot of the news outlets play on a, an audience in like a uh, sandwich shop that's not really focusing on the news. Um, uh, the views that news outlets get aren't quality views, but views that podcasts get, views that YouTube gets... Uh, those are more quality views for information to be exchanged. Also, if you noticed, the Yang Gang actually blew up when he went on the Joe Rogan podcast. And even all yeah. the way into the latter part of 2019, we were gaining new members that saw him on the Joe Rogan podcast. Yeah, that it was the Joe Rogan podcast. Three million dedicated viewers watched that. And that's what I mean. Yeah, I think at this point, like, the Yang Gang should just send Joe Rogan himself, like, a giant gift ba basket full of, like, whiskey <laughs> bottles. Like, yeah. big thank you. D hey, Rogan thanks. Do it again. He did not endorse Yang. He has... Did he... I think he didn't... Did he endorse Bernie? No, he hasn't endorsed anyone. He's not going to really endorse anyone. To and, be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if he voted Trump and said that he voted Biden on his podcast. Why Yeah, the other that? thing is... Well, if you notice on Joe Rogan's podcast... Aside from that first initial positive view, his opinion of Yang would waver depending on which podcast you caught after that. Where sometimes he was really for Yang, and then other times he was like, well, you know, this Yang guy, uh, I don't know, he's just, he's kind of okay. Like, he, he made it a point to make it known that, you know, he's not super enthusiastic about Andrew Yang um, all the times. Responding to a lot of the propaganda that was out there, a lot of the misinformation, like what AOC said about the um, UBI being a Trojan horse, and that that didn't stack with uh, other benefits, and you know, I think part of it is just trying to remain or give the perception of remaining neutral. 
so that this way he doesn't um, lose audience members in one way or another. Yeah, honestly, that's I actually had an argument about with a burner about this when Yang was still running. Um, they said, oh, why would he ever vote for Yang for that thousand dollars a month? And I pointed out that he's very business focused. He is a centrist who just wants to get on with his life and be his little podcasting self. He only really cares about his bottom line, like our base capitalistic system forces upon him. He would vote for Trump if it was Biden just to keep lower tax rates, lower interest rates, and ideally a a strengthening economy. But if Yang was on that ticket, his viewership is about 4 million people. That's about $4 billion into his market directly every month. For his bottom line, he would have only voted Yang if it was the uh, if he was the nominee. I have to agree. Um, one thing I did mention on Mindful Skeptics that I think was a missed opportunity for Andrew Yang, because he spoke a lot about universal basic income, which was great, but it felt like you know he didn't mention all of his other policies. So most people thought, oh, well, he's a one policy candidate. One of his greatest policies, in my opinion, was the American Scorecard. Because can can you imagine what that would have done to Congress if they actually had to um, face the public where it came up and it's like, oh, yeah, your uh, state has the highest um, depression rates. Your state has the highest drug use problem. Your Uh, your state has the most financial insecurity. Yeah, exactly. Um, Because you have to remember the goal of elected officials is not to do the job. The goal of elected officials is to get reelected. You cannot get reelected when you don't have political talking points that you can say, uh, yeah, that party is the problem. So the American scorecard would have hit both parties equally, where it's like, okay, you can't blame the other party, you can't blame anyone else for the mistakes in your state that you are representing. And now you have these big problems, you know, like Flint, Michigan, for example, where... You know, you have problems with clean water. You have problems with, say, you know, just throwing something out there. Uh, You know, childhood success rates are really low in your state. Um, Your state has record suicide. All those things. On Flint, Michigan. One of the things that really won me over to Yang, like, solidly made me, like, uh, Yang or die, was when he talked about Flint, Michigan in a town hall. He... Someone asked him what he would do about Flint, Michigan. And he said, first off, we'd be sending water bottles down there. Like, that's the first thing he'd do is get water bottles there. And people would go to him. And this is him saying people would go to me and say, that's too expensive. We can't do that. And he'd be like, you know what else is expensive? Poisoning our kids. Yeah. He actually said that he'd have the elected officials delivering water bottles to people mm-hmm. every day themselves yeah and he said when the pipes are fixed he's going to go to a random house and have his son drink out of one of those taps so 100 you know, yeah so yeah, you know I that know. water had to be clean that was what made me yang or die was just his conviction on the money doesn't matter the people do yeah, there, the idea of being like first among equals, a man of the people, a leader who does the same thing and leads the same kind of life as the people he is leading is like 
such an affront to the American aristocracy. It's just so brazen the way they react to suggestions like personally deliver the water me no you know it's like, <laughs> that's ridiculous <laughs> never and i think that's what set him apart from any other candidate the other thing that he did and you know most everyone that's listening to this podcast i'm sure is aware of it but for like the one or two people that may not have gotten the memo yang did a 10-hour q a live on youtube unscripted the calls were not screened. Every question that he could get to was answered. And he answered them on YouTube. He answered Twitter questions. He answered questions that came up on Reddit. You know, he hopped around everywhere. But he gave as many answers as possible. He wanted to actually connect with his voters and say, this is your time if you're on the fence even about me or even if you don't like me. Ask me a question. Show me what you want to hear about, and I'll give you my most genuine answer, unscripted, right here. Yeah, uh, th- that was that was such a true Angie Yang thing. After every rally, he would ask que- he would ask for questions, and he would answer them very well. And he would ruminate on them. Y- y- there are some um, town halls you uh, see him at, and you could see, like, if you go through the in- the history of the internet. Uh, that uh, he changes his policies and plans based on what he hears from the constituents. Yeah, that was one of the things that I strongly admired about him. Uh, The other thing was, is that uh, when it came to, like I said, just that 10-hour Q&A, the fact that he sat there for 10 hours straight. Most people can't even handle being at work for eight hours, let alone sitting in a room in front of a camera for 10 hours straight. Name me one politician anywhere in the history of politics that has done that. Well, there are actually several who stood and gave a speech for over 10 hours, filibustering the Senate, including one historical reference where there was a speech given for 24 and a half hours, and the senator had to uh, piss with his one foot outside the bathroom to stay on the floor and still giving a speech. That is impressive. But I would still say, you know, just talking to the constituents, the American people themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. not necessarily like you. I mean, he opened it up to everyone. He's like, come on, ask me a question. Even if you don't like me, even if you think I'm the worst person in the world, ask me a question. I will answer it. Yeah, I, I, we could have had Yang. Yeah, we definitely could have had Yang. And that's one thing I will say we lament for 2020, but we are laying the groundwork for that in 2024. We're already trying to get our own people elected so that we can make it easier to pass legislation and get it to his desk. Yeah, I've seen that. It's, it's really incredible. Like the whole UBI caucus has really flushed out. Yeah, and I mean, we have people running, I mean, we have someone running against Mitch McConnell right now, which, you know, would have been unheard of. I know, Mike Royer. Ah. Exactly. But the fact that... And just for the audience's benefit, in case you don't know, Mike Royer is a pro-UBI Senate candidate uh, from Kentucky. He's running on a platform of giving every Kentuckian a basic income. Uh, I'm not sure of exactly how much it is. Do you guys know? $1,000 a month. He's actually running on the Andrew Yang plan. 
the old oh, with the VAT? dividend. There you go. Okay, thank you. Yes. Yeah, that that is is really one of the next powerful tools um, that the Fed is is going to really want to get. Well, not the Fed, but the uh, House of Representatives is going to want to get really familiar with because uh, being able to tax any item specifically as that item is incredibly powerful. Um, and we until recently we didn't even have the technology to administer such a complicated tax so efficiently. Well, but, the interesting thing about that is, is they actually were planning on doing a VAT before Andrew Yang came in. There's an internal memo that hit the internet a while back that actually shows that Fed was already toying with the idea of a VAT before. And most people don't know this, but a lot of cities and municipalities have had a VAT in place since the 90s. Uh, count me along that. I did not know that we had um, a VAT in some municipalities and cities here. I knew that uh, most other countries had a VAT, but I didn't know that any American town or city had had one. Could you rattle a few off? Um, New York being one of them. Uh, Los Angeles has had a VAT in the past, and I believe still does, as well as, um, I think, Stockton, California. And I believe Texas also has a VAT, which was instituted back when they became a big oil state. Dope. Yeah, I did not know that, despite being a New Yorker myself. Not in the city, but I mean, I have lived in the city. Yeah, I only recently came across it because there is a YouTube channel that I cannot remember off the top of my head where they were actually discussing uh, value-added tax, and it was a little-known fact that cities actually have implemented a VAT. That's how the cities um, collect their cities and sales tax. So, yeah, I'm certain that uh, Sheridan is probably Googling that right now, so it should be interesting to see what he comes up with. I wasn't, but I will now. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I figured at least uh, one of the people on the chat here probably was. But, yeah, a value-added tax has been implemented here before, just on a much smaller scale. So I thought that was an interesting bit of information, and I had never heard of it before until, it was, um, until I came across that one YouTube video. And I found it very interesting that a system like that has been in place for a while. Oh, and Ariel has joined the room. Oh, welcome, Ariel. You were mentioned earlier. Oh, I what? Oh, well, I, brought, I brought up that uh, I said uh, if you were here, you would you would mention credentialism because it was relevant. Oh, as it often is. Welcome, oh, Ariel. That's... Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, I was just in the neighborhood, so I just jumped in to listen in, but my name is mentioned, so happy to be here now. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I okay, I guess I'll go. Like, yeah, I, I can't stand it. I, I don't think that, you know, our country's, you know, university for everybody push is exactly the smartest thing because not not only is it like this snobbish credentialism but on top of that it's like this thing that if your strengths in life lie elsewhere other than academia you are not exactly as important as the other person who's more of an academic and even when you take that into account There are a lot of people who have very, very high credentials, but in different areas of life, they're not exactly that, I don't know, proficient. 
So you really got to think about these things in terms of we all have like core competencies and not every one of them lie in academia or in some kind of university setting. But does that mean you should just be shunned and not listened to and not cared about? I mean, you know, it really is a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What we were talking about um, credentialism in terms of was a financial credentialism where stock market professionals have no higher success rate than random chance uh, just choosing stocks or a cat, a cat choosing stocks in one study. So there's evidence that all these accolades, all this education means nothing in so many instances. And how do you heal a society suffering from this grand delusion? Well, I have a brilliant solution for that because I'm actually writing a book about this whole thing and I'm rebranding Andrew Yang's human-centered capitalism as social capitalism. Because once we get money behind socially relevant uh, measurements, businesses will actually be encouraged to do socially relevant things. Um, but we were talking about the stock market um, earlier and uh, how oh, that, that one study, the cat. I'm so sorry. I totally lost my train of thought. I actually wanted to um, jump in on what Ariel was talking about. but kind of harken back to something I said earlier. So there is the whole thing of credentialism, which I like, you know, I love that term, by the way. But the interesting thing is, as someone that holds credentials, I have a associates in computer networking and security and a bachelor's in IT. It is worth absolutely nothing. Going to college does not really guarantee you a job at all, because most places you're dealing with a market that is flooded with people that have those exact same credentials as you. What sets you apart then becomes, okay, who has more experience? And of course, someone fresh out of college versus someone that's been in the market for a while, the person that's been out there doing it is going to have more experience. Now, going back to the supply and demand uh, aspect of it, when everyone starts having the same degrees, their market value actually drops. A degree that once could get you fifty, sixty, hundred thousand dollars a year because of scarcity of that particular talent is now ubiquitous. It's a dime a dozen. So the value of that degree drops significantly. However, the cost of that degree stays the same. Yeah, that that's unbelievable. And you know what else, Angelo? Like sometimes, uh, if if you don't interview well. You could put so much time and effort. You could be like a straight A student with the best grades, make honor roll, you know, be be really great at all that stuff. But if you give an interviewer the wrong impression, they don't see all those years and years of hard work that you put into your studies and late nights and pro projects and reports that you did. They just see what you're dressed in, what's on your resume and how you actually speak to them, your communication skills. So if you put like even as much as like like six years of hard work into university, but you don't have the um, social skills or communication skills to be good in like an interview, then like all those years of hard work, it's, it's, it's like could, could mean nothing. I mean, as sad as that sounds. 
I remember my point, by the way. Um, I'm just, I don't mean to cut Shale off or, or sorry, Angelo off here. Um, I'm writing about this that uh, before when we were in mostly scarcity driven economics before the internet and before we had global supply chains, the value of a person was what they knew and what they could functionally apply in production. But now that we have the immense databases that we have, the immense supply chains, the immense amount of people we have, now it's about how well you can deal with a pe- with people. Um, I was told by my instructor, given great life advice for hiring, you hire for the individual and you train for the job because you need to be able to work with that person. And that's what our core education system is missing um, as it tries to follow along with capitalism and train workers to be productive and churn out uh, people that know things by the thousands instead of people that can work with each other by the thousands. Um, I love that answer. Uh, interestingly, what I was going to say before is that my college actually had a required course that was just on interviewing alone and developing those skills. But when it came to the real world, just to get to that interview phase, they look at your resume and they look at your experience. And if your experience doesn't hit a certain benchmark that they're looking for, your resume goes in the trash. What was your college, Angelo? uh, My college was Brown Mackey College, which actually um, went under, not because of the department I was in, uh, which was IT, but because they had a medical department that they overfunded, overbloated, and um, half of the people coming out of that department, despite years of great training, couldn't pass the state board exam because the problem with college is that it teaches you to train for tests. It doesn't necessarily train you for problem solving. We were just fortunate that um, in our department, because we were so neglected, we were used to using equipment that didn't always work. So we actually had to actively problem solve in class just to get our class up and running to do the assignments. Yeah, that active problem solving is is something that I think our public education system deeply needs because uh, you won't always have the answer and you need to make shift an answer out of thin air. Exactly. And one area that um, I think makes college sort of almost automatable is it teaches you how to do repetitive tasks, memorize and repeat. And that is exactly <laughs> what AI does. So you're never going to outperform a computer on a repetitive task that it can do better and exact every time. You can outsmart a computer by active problem solving, which you're coming up with solutions that it wasn't pre-programmed to do. Yeah, and the biggest thing for people to remember when in this uh, AI race is that machine learning is random guesses over thousands of times a second. It, it just is, is 100% randominity until it gets the result it likes and it can build off that result. Uh, uh, humans if, can actually look at the situation and take that one-shot learning and guess a pretty good solution on the first try. Well, one thing that um, my instructor taught me was that, and this was more for security, but I think it also applies to AI, is that half of the time, uh, no matter how good an algorithm you design, say, for encryption, computers still have to run off of something that resembles uh, logic and patterns. 
And when you have logic and patterns, there is no such thing as true randomity. It's always going to be within what the computer is programmed to do from the get-go. Yeah, and, and when I say guesses, I, I do mean um, analogs. For example, like um, a race car on a racetrack, the infinity of paths it could t- take, including hitting a wall, is what the machine is going to be guessing until it gets one car that makes it to the end of the track. And then it's going to copy that car and do it over and over again until it gets better. Um, humans can make it to the end of that track on the first try. Yeah, so to I guess the analogy I would put is like, um, you know, taking a deck of cards. You have, you know, just specific things in, on every card, and you're just reshuffling constantly until you hit the card that you're looking for. And you can reshuffle 100 times until you hit that first one. It's sort of the same... Uh, method as a brute force hacking attack where it's just basically playing hangman and trying every combination until it gets one piece and then moves on to the next one until it gets the whole code uh, uh you 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 actually uh, it reminds me like i learn more from video games than i do from school because every time that i lost in a video game it's like okay well then i'm going to take a different approach and i'm going to take a different approach and i'm going to take a different approach until i finally get there now the trouble with school is is that when you you know let's say losing is getting a d or getting an f it's like okay it goes on your permanent record and now, like, you, you have the mark of shame for the rest of your school career. So you're so afraid of making a mistake. But life is the opposite. So, so we're basically, I mean, it's so bad when I think about it that, like, I get a headache. <laughs> yeah, That's- Sal Khan actually, um, the whole Khan Academy is built on that premise that we shouldn't be testing for, um, we shouldn't be testing. We should be training for mastery and educating people to master topics instead of just hit a test and move on. Right. And, and it, the, the worst message, you, you, you get an F, it's like, okay, it sticks with you and it like factors in into everything else after that and never do that again. Like, like never, you know, you know, to take that kind of chance. But I mean, that like, like you should not be discouraged after that. It's so it's so counter logic and counter how the world works now because yeah it it's it's just just we should really be taking a look at this and understand how we're setting up a whole, we set up a whole generation for failure. I mean I'm sorry to say but like that's what I think. No, it's true. It definitely is. Um that reminds me of a quote from a famous entrepreneur that's currently trying to train more entrepreneurs. Um, you can find him on YouTube. His name is Dan Locke. Um, and I quote him frequently. I, I but... was part of High Ticket Closer. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so you know Dan Locke well. Excellent. Yes, yes. Uh, we'll talk more about that, Angelo. Yeah. Awesome. So there's two quotes that I love from this man. And, you know, there's many more quotable moments, but two that really stuck with me. Uh, the first one is, don't be afraid to make mistakes because mistakes are how you learn. The other favorite quote that I have from him is, um, time is more valuable than money. I can always make more money. I can't make more time. Both of those things are true. You want to make your mistakes early. Don't be afraid to make mistakes because you are going to learn the most from them. And no one can teach you everything. Life is mostly trial and error. So that's how children learn. That's how you know teens learn. 
And yet, when we put people in school, that's what we use of- our taxpayer money to to beat out of kids. Can you believe it? We yeah. So, so what? What our taxpayer money goes to fund schools, and our schools go to making our kids less efficient and less likely to and scaring them out of mistakes. So basically, we're just using our own money to hurt ourselves and our future generations. Exactly. Think, because think it about takes- how, how bad that is. Yeah, go ahead. It's like, you know, no taxation without representation. Remember when we learned that in history class about, mm-hmm. you know, why we had the Revolutionary War? Well, I just want us to all ask, ask ourselves something right here. Uh, do, do, did the bailouts represent us? Did, no. Is what they're yeah. doing with the, with the $1.5 trillion? What, what, the, no. the UBI represents <laughs> us. So if we want to say no taxation without representation, really ask yourselves, what it, it was all this quantitative easing for the banks and Wall Street representation of the American people. So we got to go back to our roots and say no taxation without representation. We should turn that programs. as a hashtag on Twitter. That's a great idea, Ariel. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. it. With, oh, with, yeah, with, by you know, the way, with, with regards to yesterday's $1.5 trillion bailout, we should trend that. And we should ask the question, how much UBI would that have funded? I, I well, mean, emergency I'm, UBI well, is the trending one right now. Yeah. Can you imagine that? How long would that have funded a $1,000 a month UBI for right. America? So we should trend both. No taxation without representation. This, this um, you know, bailout is not representation for the people. It, it's like, it's like then, then what, what's the difference between having an oligarchy? We, we, we just replaced the kings and queens with corporate America. They're the kings and queens of, you know, our country right now. They may not have a crown or a tiara. But they might as well. I mean, I don't see the difference. Ooh, I want to hop in on this one. So, interestingly enough, since we've been talking about the government, there actually is, in the Constitution, an amendment that clearly states that it is forbidden for the government to establish a, um, the word I'm looking for, I was, I'm troubled, a uh, nobility class. That's the word I was looking for. Now, it specifically says that you cannot set up a nobility class. Now, the definition of a nobility class is when a group of people that have power are given special laws and immunities from laws that the average citizen does not. Congress actually has immunities from most of the laws that they pass, which they're not supposed to, because that's technically a nobility class. Um, For example... Arrest them for treason. Sorry. Yeah, it is actually illegal. Felony illegal to do insider trading. However, and uh, Nancy Pelosi was one of the ones that caught flack from this, her response to her own insider trading when asked about it is, well, we work intimately with companies and stuff like that, so it's impossible for us to be in Congress and not do insider trading. Well, our founding fathers had a solution for that. Public service was not intended to be a career. It was intended to be like jury duty. It was a public service you didn't necessarily want to do. You were doing it as a citizen for your country. And when your time was up, you made your money in the regular markets. That was all I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, what? Like, like, like at some point, do we just say that we have a treasonous government right now? Like we have a treasonous Congress and senators. I mean, I mean, like I, 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 I hope we don't get in trouble. But like, but like, think about it, you guys. Like, it's 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 like 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 people can commit treason against their you know like country, but 
if the ruling class can commit treason, it's like, I think the biggest treason is treason against reason. And that's the kind of treason they're committing. Well, I actually wow. wanted to throw this question to uh, Caroline, who's actually experienced living in a country with a monarchy. You know, not a, a monarchy with a lot of power, but do you notice uh, much of a difference between the monarchical structural structure and the nobility class in England versus our elected officials, aside from the fact that our elected officials do more? Like, is there a particularly defined difference? I'm not sure Caroline heard. Uh, Caroline, are you with us? She might be having technical issues. Or, or some people are just away from keys happens. That's possible. Okay, I'll get back to that question to her later. But um, just from optics perspective, and I'll just put this to everyone else at the roundtable here, um, what do you guys think is the most defining difference between our elected officials and, you know, say the monarchs of England and the House of Commons, all that? Is, and is there really a defined difference that you can see? I've, I don't see any kind of difference. I mean, like... Oh, sorry, House of Lords. Yeah, the, the the I mean, well, I mean, the the thing is, is that like y- young people just by default, just by being young, it's like your power is automatically stripped away from you, right? Because you can't vote until you're 18 years old, and by the time you're 18 years old, you've already been through a system that has thoroughly indoctrinated you. And given you, you know, and forced you to believe in certain things. So it's like, oh, we don't give you any power by this set time. But by this set time, we've already changed so many things and did so many things that it doesn't even matter when you get that power when you are that age. (laughs) You see, it's... It's so it, it it's like they they put you in that position and then and then when when you finally do get all your privileges when you're 18 years old you also get uh responsibilities too so you're concentrating so much on making ends meet and like d- doing all this schoolwork that it's like it eats up so much of your time to really like be any kind of political force that's truly like I can do something, you know? Yeah, and I suspect that's intentional, if I'm being honest, because the the prevailing attitude is the older generation is older, they have more experience, so they know more than you, therefore you should just trust them by default. Which, you know, yes, there's some merit to that idea that they're older, they know more, great. Uh, all uh... that experience does have some help, but... It also means that there's such a generational gap, especially when people have been in office for, you know, just going to throw a number out there, like 30, 40 years. And, you know, they're much, much older than the generation that's coming up. They don't understand the realities of what people are facing now because it's so different from the generation that came before them when they were around. Uh, For example, um, Andrew Yang brought up a really great point that, you know, in the 19... 30s and 40s, you had a 90% chance of doing better than your parents. By the 1990s, that was a 50% shot, and, you know, Lord knows what level it is now, probably like 2%. So the mindset of those in the past is, 
you know, you can work for a company, you can climb that corporate ladder, and you can make something of yourself, and you can retire with dignity, with a good pension. The corporate ladder has burned to the ground, and those corporate pensions have been replaced with a volatile um, 401k that is at the whims of the stock market. Bringing it back to the stock market. Yeah, I, I, I want to bring back a bit of a deep time because... Like you were saying, um, the, we we there was an assumption that the older elderly people who had more stories were worth it because they could tell you more. But now that we've created the amazing databases and communication networks that we have now, unfortunately, elderly people aren't as functional as younger p- people are now with that information. Um, before it was absolutely crucial to pass down the stories and knowledge and basically lifestyles to keep the whole community alive um, over generations and generations. But we've built so much infrastructure now that we need to accept that things are radically different and people aren't accepting that yet. Well, they may now. Well, I think it's good to for the elderly to be able to impart life knowledge, which is something you can't find in a book or a Google search, um, where they can actually teach you from experience the pitfalls that they've experienced in life, which may be just unique to them. However, the whole point of that is to impart that knowledge onto someone younger that has you know, the perspective of the world as it is right now, that can take that information and do something with it but you guys it's also about power because what what does that say to these like obsolete institutions sometimes like these professors or something like that they want to keep their jobs but their jobs is like you know like like requires route memorization when we just have the internet but they're like well you know if if like no 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 i i want to i want to keep to what i know i don't i don't want to like turn a new leaf or something like that so uh, like we we have to keep our institutions here because you know without them then who am i what am i you know yeah like those uh professors who would say you'll never have a calculator in your pocket wherever you go yeah well there's an interesting um i have an interesting perspective on that just something that popped in my head is that kind of reminds me of the church of the dark ages where new ideas were forbidden um the idea of challenging that the um earth is not the center of the universe the universe could get you literally killed and you know a lot of those scientific breakthroughs would have never happened if we had held on to that kind of strict authoritarian model where the institution is where we get our knowledge and our authority from versus, you know, expanding knowledge and information. Somebody tell the pundits that credentialism is not the center of all wisdom. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You would be thrown in the Googlog for heresy. <laughs> exactly. But I think that's oh, but- one of the things that, you know, we have now that we're tools that we don't, that we've never had in, you know, human history. The, the Library of Alexandria being one of the few places where large amounts of knowledge was contained where people could go to learn, we can literally do from our pockets with right, a but simple the, search. Right, but the new, the new gulag 
is like the gulag of trying to cancel a person or hurt their reputation or point a finger at them or like this 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 culture of like uh um how you say anger and spite and rage and um uh, what what is it like like gr- this culture like group think is kind of like the new gulag it's like oh he said that oh, like let's well, all attack him you can't say that the funny you thing know? is the mob mentality um isn't a new thing to our generation think of the salem witch trials that was the ultimate cancel culture because your life was literally canceled in some cases mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And and then they put you in like a rock in a hard place. They say like if we drop you on this cliff and you you fly, you're a witch. You're you're a bad person. But if you die, like oops, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ultimate trial and error. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Here. The term panopticon. I've heard that thrown around to describe today's uh, sense of always being watched in this sort of new Victorian era where as you described, everyone is watching everyone to make sure they don't act inappropriately because they can be uh, sort of figuratively uh, exiled, you know, from society itself. It's, That's it's, the it's, most yeah. <laughs> anti-American thing in the world, you know? It, it's like freedom of speech, freedom of expression, but like, but of course there's going to be consequences to your freedom of speech and freedom of expression it's not like you know you know in in the forms of what's going to follow you around in your reputation so so i you know that that's reasonable to a certain extent but to to another extent it's it's like you you really i I see that sometimes you just got to find an island of sanity and a sea of stupidity and so oh (laughs) yes that's very nice very well, poetic. my goodness. <laughs> um, it's 13 after. Um, do you guys, we can, we, we're over schedule. Uh, how do you guys feel? Do you, you guys have other stuff to do today? We want to, want to cut it here. You can keep going if you'd like. I'm free. Up to you. I'm willing to keep going for a little bit longer. This conversation is very intellectually stimulating. Great. Let's keep going. Ditto. Same. Okay, cool. Well, have, have at it. Now, I think our, like, if, if we want to do, end on, like, if we want to talk about a productive note, I think, like, the best thing we can do from here on out is just, you know, like, get, get, get whoever wants to be aware of this, aware of this, because it's, it's like, we, we shouldn't have to feel like we're trapped, you know, in situations that we can't do anything about. I mean, like, Andrew Yang has kind of shown us, has created this path forward. And I think this trickle up idea of not just the economy, but of media and of politics is the new way from here, because power should be coming from, you know, the citizens and the people who who are like, you know, the normal people to the people who are up there, not the other way. I agree. Um, One thing I will say that I love about this movement and what Andrew Yang has inspired is. Most of the people that we have in office have been in office for so long because they've run uncontested. No one has tried to step up to dethrone them, so to speak. If you think about it, um, for example, Senator Larry Byrd passed legislation during the Great Depression. The man died in his 90s in office, still holding that same seat for almost 100 years. He actually died just a little bit short of 100 years. 
So that should give you an idea of just how dangerous it is for our democracy to not have fresh ideas and people running for office that are saying, you know, we've had these same people for a while. They may have been useful in their time, but we want to, you know, get a crack at that too. And maybe we should try. Right. So I think it's best that we get a lot of people involved because it's not just having one or two people running for office. We should be having, you know, our senators, our congressmen regularly changed out so that we don't get stuck with the same ideas and they don't get too comfortable Mm. being there. So, you know, when they know that they're being, yeah, when they know they're being uncontested, think about that. It's like, my seat is safe. I'm not going anywhere. I can do whatever I want and I can start playing the political game and enjoying the benefits of, you know, this dark money and all that stuff. Whereas if they know that their seat is always, you know, on the verge of going bye-bye, they're more likely to be a little bit more careful and listen a little closer to their constituents. And, 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 and you know what? Like in academia, it's the same thing. Like when a professor, teacher, tenure, like tenure, tenure, sounds like, yeah, it's like, oh, so I can just do, I, I kid you not, I had an online class and the, the professor said I have tenure. So she actually said this in the online class. So that means if even if I go out on the quad and I start peeing on there for no reason, I'm still able to keep my job. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what that's, that's what she does. So so it's like it's like why why is that like like the, uh, and and yeah and the thing but and also what we got to do is uh like get rid of all these barriers to running. Like if you want to run for some kind of Congress or office or something like that, like you you have to file some paperwork and it costs like. A, a good a hefty sum i think but it's like but then then aren't we like stripping the power away from people who are financially struggling Be- because you you may have the best ideas on earth and you 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 may have the skills to to be a good political leader but if you don't have like the money and the social capital it, it doesn't matter if you can do the best job at it it's like you can't get a foot in the door you know well, that's what I was saying about um, a nobility class. There is a financial threshold that you have to meet. Even if you are the best person for the job, you have to be the well-to-do before you can get your foot in the door. But I'm curious what Shale has to think since you know he hasn't really spoken much today. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm playing producer. I try to just keep the show relatively focused and watch out for technical issues. True, but it would be fun to hear your opinions on this too. Uh, what what are we asking for my opinion on specifically? About the idea of a pseudo nobility class and the um, cost of entry to be able to even get into the running, so that the best ideas actually get into our political system, like Congress. Yeah, I, I think there is a you know a tremendous a lifestyle barrier to entry. Uh, you know, you have to be born into essentially uh, enough privilege and the right specific type of privilege even to enter the American nobility class. It certainly does exist. You know, you need to be born into a situation where you are going to the right schools that get you the right associations to um, you know, be connected to the right donor organizations and the old um, machine politics of it. Uh, 
take a hold of only certain people and they raise people from you know certain families it's it's very much nobility class in every sense except the formal you know uh so i absolutely agree that that does happen and uh it's so threatening to them when they have people like andrew yang and even bernie sanders who you know are just taking money from small donors completely subverting the uh the pipeline of money that's supposed to keep the nobility class uh, with a monopoly control over the government. So we are in a struggle to take the government back from the nobility class. It's a tough, it's a tough thing we're doing. So does that satisfy your, uh, your query? Absolutely. All right. Thank you. I will (laughs) get back to it. Depending on how the Fed rolls out their unlimited liquidity idea, it may be easier for people to get uh, loans for running. Well, I mean, you, you got it. Like, I, I don't know, but if, if you've ever played like Grand Theft Auto and you've just like used cheats, you know, up, up, down, down, BB, left, left, right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you know, th- that's that's what they have. How How can you win against that? You know, like. Like, I'll use the infinite money cheat. Here, I'm just going to pull all this money out of my butt. Like, yeah, what we, like, how, how is that? <laughs> you, you, you know, you know, we, we have to point at these things. It's like, hey, you know, you know, if, if you played a, a video game against a person who had infinite ammo and infinite health and infinite, you know, whatever, and, and then he said, oh, I won on my merits. No, you cheated. Like, shouldn't this be obvious? It should be, but it more often than not is not. Right. It's it's like, oh, yeah, no, in this... And, and then I find it so disingenuous. Like, no, 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 we can't have UBI. In this meritocracy, you need to earn your way up. You know, earn. Well, like, what... what meritocracy like the is bullshit. It's, it's, it's the biggest lie you know, because because like like oh no, but if you win the genetic lottery, then there's no meritocracy for you, right? I mean, like doesn't exist. But like you know, and 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 sometimes like your access to opportunities depends on the location you were born in and your environment and all those things. So a pure meritocracy can never exist. It just just let people um uh, um uh unlock their potential that's the best thing we can do but all the moral arguments against uh universal basic income just fall flat on their face from just like they're a total non-issue it's complete bs because there was no meritocracy in 2008 if you really think about what we had in 2008 it was reverse socialism socialism for the people who are already rich and didn't want to lose everything so it's socialism it's actually the the premise you're talking about is captured in a corporate motto Mm -hmm. privatize the gains socialize the losses right exactly so so it's it's like when when they win we don't win but when they lose we all lose that is that is the most like unfair rigged bullshit system I can I can think of and it's 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 just as bad as like kings and queen at least like the queen of England didn't plunge her country into a recession think about it she she didn't like decide to spend a whole bunch of money and then say like oh and then but but like the, 
they're just they're they're as bad if not worse than nobility and it and and it has nothing to do with merit it has nothing to do with fairness and it has nothing to do with morality they are just cheating they have the cheat codes that's all that's well, happening the funny thing is if you go actually study history the <clears throat> nobility class it came with a price and that was if you were nobility class, you were expected to fight in wars for your country. So you actually had a risk involved with being born a noble. You were certainly well compensated for it, and there were certain privileges attached to being a noble, but there were a lot more responsibilities to being a noble. In today's pseudo-nobility class, there's all the privileges and benefits and none of the risk. I can guarantee you that very few um, children of senators will ever see the inside of a military barrack, ever. Because they have that kind of pull to be able to say, oh, well, uh, yeah, my kid's not going to risk going to war. Whereas in the time of, you know, kings and queens, and, you know, my family, um, I'm actually descended from Spanish nobility. Cool. Yeah. Um, it was actually a requirement. In fact, most coat of arms, uh, the color red, Included on a coat of arms meant that you were a nobility knight. Your job was to actually be in harm's way, and you raised your kids to be able to fight very efficiently because you knew that those skills meant the, the difference between life and death for your child. So that is something that I is just learned that, that now. Lost that's today. unbelievable. You're you're telling me that like it's more unfair than like medieval times yes that is like yeah that 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 like your mind is blown you know <laughs> here's the joke that we're at at this point is we're facing down the barrel of machine owning plutocrats and peasants that have to work gig jobs to get food even though they have amazing luxuries for next to no cost it's artificial oh. scarcity by the book that's crazy, man. I mean, it, it's you. You know, you know why we're like we don't realize this because, like, the 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 bread and circus that they have out there is like, you know, they 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 try to addict you with all these, you know, be, be, because because like the internet doesn't cost any money, and you can just go on there and watch YouTube video after YouTube video, and like. Uh, look at the news on some celebrity nonsense and it's like okay like keep them distracted like that's good uh just don't pay attention to what's going on and that's that's the part of the reason why you go to so many people and you tell them do you know who like your senators are or your congressmen are like what laws are being passed and they're all like nope. <laughs> the average person couldn't tell you the members on their city council to be honest and when I was in college, uh, the person that was teaching us constitutional law was a sitting judge. He would actually assign us to be able to name our city council, our mayor, the mayor in the next county over, our politicians, and at least five policies that they passed. And when he first assigned it, the whole class freaked out. We're talking about uh, people of varying ages from, you know... Uh, 18 all the way up to, I think we had one member that was in their 60s, and just deer in the headlights the whole time. So it required that. a lot of research to actually learn what our local government did 
not just, okay, who's president, who's your congressman, but what they actually did and what laws they passed and what policies they passed that were specific to our state. That during the headlights, that's the uh, local journalism not being able to fund enough people to go into those chambers and sit through those uh, meetings. Right, for sure. It that 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 is unbelievable to me. Be, be, you, you know what's even more outrageous is that you would you would think that we live in a community, so your schools would would discuss these things with you. They don't, and it, and and that that's what amazes me the most. And it's like, why are we discussing? Like, I know these subjects, okay, but it's like we don't like like schools are like separate from the communities they live in because it's it's like you go to the school but the school never talks about like okay what shops and businesses are around you how how is the city planning or what's the public transportation around you like like what 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 are the local malls shops and like what are people buying there and how does all this commerce work so once you get out of these places you're like oh i know enough about you know the 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 community around me to like be a functional citizen but (laughs) it's ridiculous it's ridiculous you know there's actually a funny uh psychological thing that happens when people get out of college they think i'm i finished college i have a degree I know everything. And the truth of the matter is, no, you have a foundation. You don't know everything. You are just, you know, fresh out of college. You know just enough that you could get a degree that says, I'm acceptable. Yeah, you learn just enough to actually start learning. Exactly. And um, that was kind of the goal of our ethics class was to teach, well, reteach, basically, um, basic fundamental problem solving again and the fact that you have to wait until college and you have in our case a month-long class to relearn these skills that have been stamped out of you for oh you know most of your life as soon as you went into the school system that kind of tells you you know we're not we're not a society that necessarily problem solves we are a society that reacts and we've seen that play out so many times that's that that's terrible uh, um i mean <laughs> like like the the what what we have to do is like like just just like wake wake i don't know just more people should be listening to this because this is this is just so important and it's it's not being discussed fox news or cnn or msnbc because all they do is like bark at at the other side and invite their puns and advice, oh this will never work that guy has a bad idea but they they don't they never get to the root like they 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 address all of the symptoms but the root causes are never explored never talked about and that's why we find ourselves in these this this these sisyphean conversation uh debates between democrats and republicans that's all it's, it's yeah yeah the thing is i don't think they want to solve the root problem and this is just my observation you know of my 35 years of life, but I've lived through, you know, Ronald Reagan's presidency all the way up until now. And if there's one constant I've noticed, it's don't solve the problem, make it just painless enough, but still, you know, that tiny little thorn in your side that we can keep using it as a political football to bounce back against each other like 
my idea is better than yours, but never actually try to really solve it. Exactly. That was highlighted when the Affordable Care Act was being passed. There were two things that were taken out of it that would have actually made a difference. The first was the Dorgan Amendment, which allowed us to buy back drugs from other countries, most of the countries that actually manufactured the drugs, um, at a cheaper price than what they were charging here in America. The example that Dorgan used was a bottle of Lipitor, two different color codes on it, same pills inside. One of them charged $3 a pill, the other one charged $35 a pill. The only difference between those two bottles was the color strip on the outside. And Uh, that was shot down by both Democrats and Republicans, never made it into the actual bill. The second was the public option, which was stripped out by a Democrat majority House and Senate. Damn, I didn't realize there was actually a public option in the ACA. That would have really made a difference. Right. It was. Yeah. Well, well, here's the bottom line, though. The bottom line is the bottom line that that if if the problem is solved, then where's the money? Yeah, yeah. the uh, interventionalists right. paying themselves. Right. They, well, they, I, they, I don't know if yeah. you guys know this, but um, both political parties are um, technically a for-profit business on the books. They actually yeah, oh. have lo- they actually take out loans and things. The Democratic Party actually just recently paid off a few of their loans. They well, were that in was debt that for a while. Money. <laughs> uh, yeah, the DNC and the RNC are for private for profit private corporations, and it came out in a court case last year or uh, yeah, last cycle um, from the uh, Bernie campaign that the DNC does not actually follow the results of the convention itself they only use the convention as a gauge of what the constituents want they still have the final say on who the nominee is for the party regardless yeah. of what happens at the convention <laughs> that's that's interesting you you know because then we're then obviously this is not a democracy at all Nope. <laughs> no, not really. It is uh, our, our leaders are chosen for us. Now, the funny thing is, and this was a conversation that's been had in the Yang Gang a few times, and one of the things I love about the Yang Gang is we all sort of woke up to the reality of politics. Mm-hmm. And once we started going down that rabbit hole, we found out just how deep it goes. But one thing that the Yang Gang um, had suggested is if both of these parties are basically for-profit businesses... There is literally nothing stopping us from forming our own political party on right. that same model. Yeah, and no, that, starting that... to fundraise. It's that uh, Kim Iverson put out a great video recently that cited and history complaining on the ways to uh, beat these people at their own game. Like party. you know, you know the the best way to like beat the enemy is to know that thine enemy. You know, so so get into their minds and their thought patterns. And see like what they do, and then emulate that, but for a better cause, for a better result. You know, we we can we can be smart about this. You know, <laughs> right. what were you saying, Shale? Oh, Kim Iverson put out a video. Uh, Kim Iverson's a YouTube. Uh, I don't know. She she does political news. I'm not sure what you call her, the pundit. Uh, I'm I just recently discovered her. I really really like her channel. She put out a video citing historical attempts to create a progressive alternative to the Democratic Party 
and how and why they failed. And she surmised that the way to succeed is to pull progressives from the left and the right in equal measure, you know, if you can. Otherwise, it just becomes uh, eventually reabsorbed into the only opposition party. Um, does that make sense? You know, so yes. to make yourself dis- a distinct enough third choice that you have yeah. a third right to not center. Yeah, Why yeah, you need to be right to not center. Well, I think it's a false dichotomy. That's why. Yeah, well, because each party branded themselves uh, with a direction. There's left and there's right, and I actually would like to see um, just a forward party, which you know breaks away from the political norms where we go back to okay, people are people. They're not going to agree on everything. Let's find a handful of issues that we can all agree on that's going to create the most benefit for the most amount of people and run on that. So that's kind of the way I'm looking at this is that's exactly what Andrew Yang did. Said it's not left, it's not right, it's forward. And uh, I remember seeing last year there was an interview with him and they asked, you know, why did you run as a Democrat? Why didn't you just run as an independent? And he said, because you can't get elected as an independent. You need way too much money and you need the um, recognition of a party behind you to be able to play in that game. Well, assuming that we were able to set up our own party and assuming that there's enough disillusioned people from both parties willing to join, that could be a valid alternative. 40% of our population is either independent or disengaged. Right, that's the percentage you should be looking at. Instead of looking at, you know, the Democrats to pull from, look to the Democrats last. Sure, love Democrats in, but look to the disengaged, look to the Republicans, look to everyone who is not represented because they are the people who are looking for representation and who will really get behind you. Exactly. And, you know, trying to play on ideology doesn't work. Going on a platform of solutions like Andrew Yang did I think resonates with people because it's such a shift from what we're used to. Each party tries to brand itself with its own ideology. Uh, the Republican Party is, you know, uh, Christian values, protecting the Second Amendment, and, um, like, supporting the military. The Democratic Party is, uh, perve- is um, social issues, um, pushing for social change and things like that, although, you know, they always tend to fall short of actually creating real change. So I feel like both parties, you have, you know, a distinctive identity, but no one's running on, I don't care about identity, let's just get some solutions to problems. Just get the problem, figure it out, what's the root cause, come up with a solution. And I feel like that was refreshing, and that's what caught a lot of our attention about Andrew Yang is because he wasn't playing that tired old game, he was just trying to give us something tangible and real that could actually help us right away. Everyone else's thoughts on that? Yeah, the, for sure. It's, it, it, it just made sense to me. I mean, and there was something so liberating about it. Just this weight lifted off of your shoulders. And it's like... You you go you go into like you know Facebook or Twitter and what have you and you just see this cesspool of anger and mud flinging and and all this and then it's like wait 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 and and then it's like somebody says like hang on hang on a second 
what why are we behaving like this it's like we 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 all want like enough so we can you know live the lives that we want to live in the way we want to live them whether it's like you know the american dream of a house and a car and having a job that you enjoy and that fulfills you and then we can talk about the social issues like later but like hey like wh- why are we always struggling all the time and and then whether you were a democrat or a republican or conservative it was like hmm hang on let's throw all that away and let's just do something that's just going to help us in the movement and that makes sense and just the the liberation that comes from that to not have your mind enslaved into these idiotic camps and just ang- getting angry at the other side was was it it like pulled people out of a depression you know oh absolutely and one thing that was surprising uh for me just being so used to the us versus them politics was talking to people in the yang gang as equals that were from all different parties i was talking to people that were you know once hardcore trump supporters you know they thought for sure trump was going to be it and they realized that he wasn't and they were looking for a better solution they didn't hate trump they actually liked some of the things that he did where but what they saw in andrew yang was an upgrade and it was interesting talking to people that had never voted before some of them you know in their 40s and 50s saying yeah you know this is the first time i've voted in my entire life and it's because i believe in the solutions that are being put forward not i believe in the ideology i believe in the party i believe in the solutions and i think that's one of the things that brought us all together and that's one of the things that sets the yang gang apart and why we're so powerful is because andrew yang taught us get out of the political echo chamber look at a problem for what it is and problem solve and that's exactly what we did and that's exactly what we've been doing is okay we see our system is messed up how do we fix it they're not going to fix it no one else is coming to help us how do we fix it right and we started actually coming up with solutions and and then but you you know it it threatened the powers that be and since since it was like that because they 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 profit off of this us versus them mentality and that's how they get their eyeballs and their ratings and their pocketbooks filled so the MSN machine was like, we, we got to, we got, because, because it's an, like, if we're being honest, it's an existential threat to them. Their, their, their profit, uh, you know, model is, is all the dysfunction. If, if you, if the dysfunction is your profit model, you're going to do everything in your power to make sure a person like Andrew Yang cannot get to where he needs to get to, you know. And I think that's what scares them the most, is that when Andrew Yang dropped off, they thought, okay, well, the Yang gang's just going to be depressed, and then they're going to fall behind whoever is the nominee. They're just going to lock and step, yes, sir. And that didn't happen. Instead, we turned turned that um, on its head. We're like, one, we're still going to vote for Yang, so you're not getting our vote. Two, we're going to give you the middle finger for all the pandering you're trying to do. Because we see it for what it is. Yep. And three, we're not only going to um, change the system, we're going to run against the people that are in the system and change it from the inside. 
Exactly. Well, I mean, once, once, you know, you know, like, it's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, it's like, I am the almighty Oz. And then like, you, you go and you get that curtain, and you're pulling you and then it's like, Oh, don't look at me here. Don't look at it. It's like, once, once you see that, once you pull that curtain, and you see that, that all the smoke and power and all that thing is just like a midget behind a curtain who's pushing all a bunch of buttons and there's nothing that powerful about that person. You're not going to go back to like being influenced by them. Exactly. And I think one of the things that we realized just being able to actually interact with a candidate like Andrew Yang, who took the time to actually talk to people Mm-hmm. And even to this day, he's, you know, retweeting at people, he's making himself available for communication, is you don't suddenly see it as this grandiose thing. You see it as, okay, I, this guy is, you know, the same as me. You feel that connection and you're like, if he can do that and get to where he is with the right support, what's stopping the rest of us? And there's yeah. all of us here that still support our own you know, let's grow ourselves, let's get our people in. And one of Andrew Yang's uh, most recent uh, announcements is he wants to grow the Yang Gang by 10 times in four years. So that tells me two things. One, he's running in four years, great. And two, that, you know, we need to grow. And, and you know what else? We have the receipts of all of the dirty tricks of the MSN and the establishment so we can show those receipts, you know, of, of the Yang Media blackout and what they did and just their level of incompetence and ignorance and dirty tricks that they play. So it's, well, it's kind of like when you shine a light on a cockroach and it tries to hide into a corner, we can show the cockroach that it can't hide in the corner anymore. Thank you. Some documentaries will come out right before the 2024 election on that. Yeah, that would be interesting, you know, kind of recap of, hey, this is all the dirty pull that happened last time. Just keep an eye out for it again. Well, but, what could be more powerful is now that Yang is on CNN, it could be framed as petty corporate squabbling. Yeah, in a way it could be. But um, one of the things that we did that turned, and I thought this was a brilliant idea, I give full credit to Padgett, uh, Kagi for this, is when we started praising anyone that was giving Yang a media shout-out and giving no attention, which was, uh, you know, you're, you've probably seen this before. When we decided we were going to just completely boycott MSNBC, their stocks actually took a pretty good size hit. It wasn't enough to scare them completely, but it was enough to make them a little uncomfortable. But I think that's Part of the reason it influenced CNN was because we came together and actually forced an apology out of CNN, and then they realized that the Yang Gang is a ratings machine. So they were more than happy to welcome Yang, which made other news networks now suddenly have to compete with them. So it actually, in a way, created artificial competition between two entities that are used to creating artificial outrage. Wow, very insightful. That's, Thank you. That's a, well, it's like, a, yeah, they, they had been used to colluding and not really competing. And then there was an artificial cause for them to compete and it worked and they had to compete. Wow. Hey, that's yeah. great. great way to think about it. Great framework. I think just, we just hit these people where it hurts the most. 
and that that is like their pocketbooks and it's like we we take the floor from under the, underneath their feet it it's it's so great because you know with without the average person these people wouldn't be where they are and they're just used to like milking people for outrage and anger and nonsense but when we kind of like shine a light and and other 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 like other people wake up like the way we woke up there is no going back and i i have a great i i look forward to what the future holds you know oh absolutely i see um getting back to something sheridan said earlier in a way i see a star trek future that was the ultimate future that i saw with andrew yang and i still think it's absolutely attainable but one thing i love about this movement is we're still growing and people are still taking an interest although granted they're a little late to the game but our numbers are growing and we're working actively on still yanging people we're still getting people to notice what andrew yang's policies are and learning about the background of the yang media blackout and everything that happened because it shines a light on so many problems with our political system and the fact that we used our collective intelligence which i've said earlier um the yang gang as a whole is smarter than any supercomputer on this earth could ever be and we come up with ideas instantly we can basically hack this system just like we hacked the artificial divide that the news is trying to create because you have the fox news which is dedicated to the republicans you have msnbc which was dedicated to pandering to democrats and then you had cnn that tried to be neutral and cnn won because they actually yeah. had to refocus on the people while the other two polarizing ones were all busy trying to fight them and each other <laughs> have have you noticed how like when andrew yang is having those interviews with all the pundits it's like they they malfunction it it's like you can see, <laughs> it, it's like you can see the sparks coming out of their heads because they don't know what to, how to respond because they're so used to the partisan hackery and the bickering and all that stuff that when Andrew talks to them, like, 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 like Anderson Cooper basically said, like, you're, you're making me look like an idiot over here. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm just dumb. Like, I, I don't even, they, they didn't even know. He was like on a whole nother level. Like they, 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 they just stared at him and they're like, Ooh, like well, it was like, <laughs> If you look at the panel and watch closely, and this is one thing I love about watching the CNN panels recently, is if you look at any other panel, they talk over each other, they try to kind of just get the camera time. When Andrew Yang speaks, nobody speaks. They're nobody all very speak. quiet and watching very carefully. Yeah, you're very right on that. Nobody speaks when when they when Yang is turned to. Like um even a lot of them will like go and ask Yang for a question. Then all the bickering and, and talking that was happening quiets down to listen to Yang. Yeah. And I think part of that is because he's giving practical, straightforward answers without any kind of what I like to call political fog. Now, this is actually a very simple formula that I'm going to just explain here. Political fog is basically something that looks like it has mass and substance, but as soon as you walk up and try and touch it, it's just, there's nothing there. The same thing is true with politicians. I can tell you the exact formula. It is, create a straw man that is relatable. 
doesn't matter if the person you're talking about is real or fictional. Uh, corn pop, for example. <laughs> I was say corn pop. You know, you create the straw man where you tell this story like, you know, growing up, I had this friend that, um, you know, went through this thing. They were so poor that they had to lick stamps to eat. Um, and you just kind of pile on these little buzzwords and little relatable tips. And you create this perfect straw man. And then you say, you know, I remember that experience and that is who I'm fighting for. And you just keep referring back to the straw man. And people are like, hey, I relate to that straw man. Uh, he's talking about me. He's talking to my issues. When realistically, it's just a straw man. It's political fog. And all it does is you're not relating to me. You're relating to that straw man that I'm championing for you. That's exactly how I feel about Bernie Sanders and medical cannabis is every time he tweets something about um, cannabis or cannabis patients, I'm like, your tokenism hurts. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, I definitely get that same impression. And the other way that politicians uh, do their thing, because a perfect example of a political straw man that exists, but was basically used as a political straw man, was uh, Joe the Plumber. You remember him? During the... um, Obama versus, I believe, Romney race, where everyone was saying that they were fighting for Joe the Plumber. John McCain brought him up like 10 times in a row. (laughs) Yeah, go back and uh, like just Google Joe the Plumber. Um, What was Sarah Palin who brought it up? Okay. Uh, Yeah, Sarah Palin also uh, referenced him. And all Joe the Plumber was was literally an actual guy who was a plumber that asked a question, but he was liked and relatable. So now he was that straw man that they could champion and fight for. But uh, the only other way to create political fog is to say there's this evil thing, this evil villain that's coming to hurt you and I'm the only one that can protect you. I will stand and fight for you. I will stand in the way of this threat and it will never hurt you. That's the other way that people do political fog. So you have a straw man that's relatable for good or a straw man that's a boogeyman that, you know, everyone should be afraid of, that, you know, they're going to somehow protect us from. Uh, George Bush, for example, did a great job of that during his re-election campaign, which was all footage of 9-11, with him just talking over it. Slow, dramatic footage of 9-11, and the underlying message of it was, this is what could happen again if you don't elect me. Forget that it happened on my watch. But if you don't elect me, this could happen again. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely against that more authoritarianism uh, tactic of creating fear. It's very unproductive. And I feel like Donald Trump uh, did that himself. He created the uh, scapegoat boogeyman of, you know, all these illegal immigrants are coming. They're taking over our jobs sooner or later. You know, there won't be jobs for any Americans. It'll all be illegals. So we have to do something about it now. And it's not. It's wall-to-wall machines and robots. Exactly. But he had a boogeyman to fight. Um, Joe Biden is, has, you know, gone with the positive, relatable, you know, this is the good guy that, you know, you want to associate yourself with that I'm championing, straw man, versus, um, I would say... Bernie, who's going with the fear tactics of it's the billionaires that are the cause of all your problems, and we're going to stick it to them. 
you know, I'm going to champion to fight those evil billionaires. Yeah, Bernie does weaken himself a lot by making such a false dichotomy that it's uh, everyone against some people that have a lot of slips of paper. Exactly. And that's the thing. Both of them are using a well-established psychological tactic of you either react with fear to something and have a knee-jerk reaction and you want someone to protect you, or you feel connected to a straw man that you feel like they're fighting for this straw man, so they must be fighting for you. And they're both, you know, two sides of the same coin. It's a total BS argument, but it makes for good manipulation to people that only tune in half of the time because they feel safe and comforted by this leader and they don't want to really invest the effort into going any further than that. It's like, okay, I found the guy that makes me feel good, so that's who I'm going to vote for. Shale, what are your thoughts here? Well, I think we are a full hour over. You guys want to call it? It's been a good long episode. It has. It really, really has. Yeah. All right. So okay. let's each yep. say our name and our Twitter handle, handle very quickly, starting with you, Angelo. My name is Angelo. You can find me on Twitter at Hellion Hellfire. Ariel. My name is Ariel. You can find me on Twitter as Ariel's underscore Armada. That- Caroline. As Caroline. You can find me on Twitter under the handle Victorian Aerofan. Sheridan. Hello. Yes, this is Sheridan. You can find me on Twitter under the handle at JSaberGamer. And I am Shale. You can find me on Twitter at S-H-A-E-L-R-I-L-E-Y. Thank you for spending time with us. We will be back with another Yang Gang roundtable soon. Until then, take care and keep attending to the channel through which you receive this episode to receive the next. And wash your hands with warm do, water. Do wash your hands for 20 full seconds in hot water.